Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Hi, Michael. Hi, Terry. Another week and another set of episodes. Yes, yeah, so we're, we're going to be discussing part two of the Mirrors and Windows episode, where we talk about episode 141 with Sonia Renee Taylor on The Body is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love, episode 142, a Survivor Story series with Karen Gosby on her memoir, A Perfect Nightmare, My Glittering Marriage and How It Almost Cost Me My Life. And finally, episode 144 with Hillary Levy Friedman, with Hillary Levy Friedman on her book, Here She Is, The Complicated Reign of the Beauty Pageant in America. So now that we're closing this series on mirrors and windows, I'm wondering what you thought about each of these episodes with regard to how it either mirrored aspects of our culture or society or provided a window into them. Each one of these episodes in particular did have a different perspective, What each different from the other. In order for me to answer that question, I would have to talk with more detail on each episode. And they all had a, a, a different uh, perspective on, uh, on a certain aspect of society. Let's start with the first one. The body is not an apology, the power of radical self-love. Now, you know, in that episode, Sonia, Renee, Taylor, and I referenced Bell Hooks's book. Actually, she has a series of books on love. And yes. one of them is on self-love for women in particular called Communion, which you and I read as part of our book club we conversation. Did. So what I said to Sonia was that, you know, a lot of what she said echoed what I had read in Bell Hooks's not just that particular book, but in her work in general, that self-love is radical as a foundation for women to have a consciousness around patriarchal power, suppressive tactics, and how to be able to liberate oneself from that structure. So the fact that she, you know, added the word radical in front of it and provided what I thought was a very useful tool in her book of sort of summaries and tips of um, exercises, I think actually makes it even more accessible than what Bell Hooks had done. So what were your thoughts about it? Did you feel like it was repetitive from what you read with Bell? Um, How did it compare? Did it extend what you already knew? I mean, one of the key takeaways from, from communion was that we should be able to be happy within ourselves. And while, yes, this is reiterating that, I I do think that she did add additional, an additional perspective. So one of the things that she mentioned in her book was adornment, right? She mentioned, for example, uh, she uses things like earrings for her adornment and they help her express herself, right? So self-expression is important to her. And that's something that I believe communion, for example, didn't have necessarily. And, and she sort of talked about the difference between expressing yourself and not using, for example, a watch or or something to ex- have like external validation, right? Like uh, a lot of people may 
wear a Rolex watch, not necessarily to express who they are, but to get validation from other people to show what their status is, for example. That's a, a, one way that she really expanded on the idea. Yeah, I really like how she structured the analysis about the difference between adornment for oneself as a form of self-expression versus performative femininity in order to attract the male gaze, for example. And also further reinforce the societal norms that we have, right? That's that's another thing that is... Yeah, so the tool, I guess, for lack of a better word, that she offered was just to engage in analysis. You know, why are we doing this? You know, what do we expect from this? And how do we feel about it? And if we're looking externally to others to give us, you know, fulfillment, then that isn't radical self-love. Right. So this is this really highlights the mirrors theme that we have, right? So to look at yourself and be able to identify why you do certain things that you do, right? So adornment is just one example, right? And on the theme of radical, right? I think one of the things that you asked her in this episode was, what if there's a person that you feel that they don't necessarily deserve love? And for her to to respond with sort of like, we should love others in order to, well, she said something along the lines, like we want to give people a chance to change. That's a radical idea, right? To think that giving space people to change despite uh, horrible things that they may do, whether they're abusers. Um, I, I thought that was that, that, that was something that I, I feel you have questions in, and it, it was it was an interesting conversation that you guys. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, yeah. So I remember. I think I I had that day looked at a group post in one of the many groups that I'm, you know, online groups that I'm a part of. And there was a post by a woman who, who implied through her post that giving love to others is the source of fulfillment and happiness and putting others needs first. If I remember correctly, maybe I'm mischaracterizing it, but my response to that was, well, we need to, give it to ourselves first, because it sounded like someone who was talking about a toxic relationship and trying to blame themselves, which society already has does a good job of internalizing and normalizing, trying to blame themselves if a relationship isn't working and saying they're not giving enough to the other person. Right. So my response to that was to ask Sonia her thoughts. And she basically said both both ideas can be coexisting. So is that what you meant? Like you agree? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Both ideas can be coexisting. Also, she did reiterate that you should be taking care of yourself, right? Like I I think the idea of taking care of others before you take care of yourself is is not a, is not a good one and one that shouldn't be promoted. Right. So I, I think, I think she did agree with that, that both can be true. You can love others and also love yourself. Well, okay. So I'm going to say, hold on a second. So with regard to Yes. And she also said, if someone is harming you, that you sh- that doesn't necessarily mean, nor should it mean, that you should be the one responsible to help that person find their way on a radical self-love journey. 
that you can have that person be completely out of your life and still feel compassion. And it's not your job to fix them. And so also why I said, hold on just now yes. is because one of the things that I, I challenged with Sonia was, uh, which I guess Bell Hooks does this in communion. You know, she addresses this more directly is someone who treats you, who abuses you and mistreats you. That behavior isn't love, even if they say it is. And so for you to interpret that as love and for you to interpret your response to them as love may not be an accurate description. Maybe your response to them is attachment, mm-hmm. you know, and an unhealthy attachment, you know, or maybe codependency, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you love that person who is harming you. So this applies obviously with regard to harmful, toxic relationships where there's power imbalances. Obviously, if there's power struggles in a mostly equitable relationship, that's different. You can love that person, but I'm questioning whether you can actually love someone when that person is harmful. Maybe that is just attachment or codependency. Or, or sometimes it's just the survival technique, right? They just they, they just do certain things or show certain or, or, or show affection just to survive and not not continue the harm or cause additional harm in their eyes, right? Even though it, it, it's insidious and it really can can go deeper after that, even if they show that they're quote unquote amenable, right? Like or, or compliant, it, it's dangerous. It could be dangerous. Yeah. So. I think this is a good segue into our next episode with Karen Gosby, whose memoir I thought did a great job of characterizing what it's like to be in a coercive controlling relationship mm-hmm. where the physical violence wasn't necessarily primary. Right. Uh, and and also the relationship was between a white male and a white female. And the man made a lot of money. It was very wealthy. And so I think that people tend to stereotype that domestic violence somehow is a function of poverty or mental illness, that it doesn't affect the wealthy or white or upper middle class people. And that's not true because those people are engaging in these tactics and behaviors that are just not getting arrested for the, for them because course of control isn't yet nationally uniformly uh, a crime. Yeah. And, and speaking on that, one of the things that you mentioned is that society takes a look at things like mental illness and addiction and blames the abuse on those things, right? That, that was one of the key things that I learned from this conversation where, where a lot of times in an abusive relationship, the spouse sometimes themselves may say, oh, well, you know what? It's because he's drinking and it's because he has this addiction that he's abusing me. But it's, that's a common misconception because the, despite the mental illness, despite the addiction, the abuse still can happen. And I, regardless of that, this, like uh, uh, mental illness and uh, addiction isn't part of many people and many people are harmed by domestic violence. Well, also... You know, mental illness could be something that comes as a symptom of their being victimized in a course of controlling relationship where there's so much gaslighting that's happening and and psychological manipulation 
that relationship itself and the dynamics actually is a form of crazy making. In quotes, you start questioning and doubting your own sense of reality, your perceptions, because the other person is telling you that what you see and feel isn't real. Yeah, that that that, that must be terrifying to not to to have that your your sense of reality skewed because of someone else, right? And one of the other things that she mentioned was that she basically married somebody that's a cult leader, right? Somebody that basically has the power to influence others using his his or her charisma. Um, in this case, it's his to be able to, to yes gaslight people and really influence not just her but others in harmful ways. And uh, it, it seems like like this this isn't just this doesn't just happen in in relationships. It could also happen in in other communal settings, whether it be like uh, religion or in a lot of ways, I think like politics, right? People take a leader and they, they, hey, he's become a cult leader, right? Like, uh, yeah. So, so I think you're, that's, that's right. I, I'm glad you pointed that out because the dynamics of abuse is very similar to the emotional manipulation and dynamics of um, how cult leaders actually attract people to believe them. So there's this very charismatic figure who people adore, you right. know, and they maybe either want to emulate or they want to be with. And and they're able to, in some ways, cast a spell because what they ask of you is to sort of accept their full reality, their definition of happiness and joy. And, and sometimes that, you know, will include having you give up your freedoms and sacrifice either your relationships, your family, et cetera, in order to be part of that group. I don't think you know this yet, but our next book for mm-hmm. the book club, by the way, Michael, is going to be The Cult of Trump. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, yeah because <laughs> I had spoken to a uh, some experts uh, in this field who highly recommended the book. I believe I had spoken to you in the past about the Nixium cult and the the leader who's now in jail and a lot of the tactics that were described and those multiple documentaries mirror actually the tactics that abusers use right so i think it'll be very informative because like you said these kinds of tactics of control and manipulation they're used in every setting by people with power and so it's very easy to get sucked in and start replacing your your judgment and your senses with what they want you to believe. Exactly. And it's scary to think that even a person who's so far away from you, like, like Trump, right? Like they, 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 they he probably shares a, a lot. He doesn't share that many things in common with the, the, his typical follower that he has the ability to do something like, like isolating the person, right? That's one of the tactics, like isolating someone else, like people who are his followers, will be disconnected from their family and, and, and distance themselves and, and their family around them may, may shame them because they're QAnon supporters, right? And they will still stick to this belief and have this strong connection where it's hard for them to let go. And, you know, a, a, a cult leader may have a lot of different uh, characteristics that make them that cult leader. One of the things that, that Karen mentioned, and you mentioned also in this particular, in her particular situation in the book, uh, A Perfect Nightmare, was that he was attractive, right? So not only did he have that charisma, but he was 
very attractive. And that was one of the things that made his influence work. Yeah. And, and we talked about um, Biederman's chart of coercion, which just to remind folks, we talked about this with Jess Hill in both of our interviews with her, the journalist and author of See What You Made Me Do. And those methods include isolation, like you mentioned, monopolization of perception, which is what we're talking about, replacing your sense of reality and judgment with theirs, humiliation and degradation, which happened with the Nixium cult and also happened with Karen. You know, Mm -hmm. she was constantly, every time she did something, her ex-husband, George, would put her down and make her feel really bad and, and not believe in herself. And then at the last minute, he would show up. And so that was another one, exhaustion. So this, you know, she mentioned how they would have fights where she wouldn't get enough sleep and she wasn't able to be on her, you know, be her best in the work that she was doing to, to build her reputation, threats, and uh, demonstrating omnipotence, um, and then forcing trivial demands. So these are, these are all things that Karen described in her book right. and is true for both cults as well as for, for Karen. I mean, in the Nixium documentary, this cult leader, he would call at three or four in the morning people and mm-hmm. ask them to get out of bed and go with him for a walk. And then he would talk to them and basically, you know, try to indoctrinate them, you know, right. and give them tasks. And then they would have to like, you know, so this like exhaustion part and you're too tired to even think. Yeah, it must be exhausting. So I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's a certain type of person that will fall to this or anybody could fall, fall or to these tactics. It's hard to tell. Well, because I, I have to say, so the cult experts that I spoke with, um, and so this is true for domestic violence, true. Anyone can be a victim. Okay. And the, the reason that's the case um, but probably more so with cult victim targets. Mm-hmm. And what domestic violence victims and cult victims have in common is their desire to believe in the other person's good intentions. Okay, that, so- That's actually something that is to the cult expert that I spoke with. It's common for most of us. So those who are more skeptical of human nature, maybe it protects them more, but then it puts them in a position where they're less you know, able to connect. There's more um, psychological barriers for connection because you're, you have this sort of shield. Right. You have a barrier between you and, and your, your ability to connect with people because you might not necessarily see the best in other people. That makes, that, that makes sense. I don't know. For me personally, I give people the benefit of the doubt that they want to do as much as, as good as they want, as they can, you know, in, in their particular circumstances. But I also do believe that people are selfish in general. So maybe that's what it is, because, well, yes, I think, and this is, again, my opinion, right? I do think that people want to do good, but they want to do what's good for them, right? So whatever works for them, that's what they're going to probably do more than helping others. Even though, like, that may not be true of everybody, I try not to make it true of me, but a lot of times I fall into that category, too, where I, I want to look out for myself. But but it, 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 it it's a balance. So, yes. I, I think another reason another reason people fall for this is because they want connection, they want a, a sense of community. I think in, in terms of cults, right? Like a lot of people want this community where they feel accepted. It's just strange because, like for example, in, in, with, with Trump, it's it's not like you are also isolated from society in general. So I I, I don't know. Maybe that's I, I don't know that 
Trump supporters are isolated from society. I feel like there's a large number of them and they have a community of their own. Well, they might be isolated from progressive liberal society, but I don't think that they want to be part of that. I, I do think, I, I, I mean, and I don't know the statistics, so I'm, I'm thinking more people don't support Trump than the people who do support Trump. And I'm only basing this off like the election where more people voted against him than, than voted for him. I would think that you're disconnected from reality if you're a Trump supporter, because there's things that are just really obvious and you're not seeing all the flaws, or maybe you're seeing all the flaws and you think that's okay. Like his racism is okay. His abuse is okay. Or you're not seeing it. So like, there's a disconnect there. I think it maybe there is a big enough area where they're accepted in their, in their circle. And because sometimes entire are involved in this. Right. But well, I don't know. A let, lot of them. Let me say this. I think that we can't discount that there's a huge number of people who actually did not vote. If your indicator for, you know, how many people are supporting Trump and disinformation is the election that doesn't take into account the people who didn't vote. So one can call those people complicit because they didn't see the harm enough to take action. Like they may call themselves independent or neutral or indifferent, but the fact of the matter is there was this individual and a whole network of people that support him who are harmful to society, to a democracy and to our constitution. So those people, I think, if you add them to the voters who supported Trump, outnumber those who voted for Biden. So, okay, well, I would agree that, yes, you're right. Most people in the United States didn't vote, right? So, and let's say that, I think that's also true if you discount people who can't vote like children, right? I, I yes, that still holds true. I, 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 I to say that you are supporting Trump if you don't vote. Yes, I, I I'd also I also agree uh, with that. But sometimes I would say a lot of people just don't care enough about politics or not informed enough to care. Right. So like that's why they didn't vote. They're so just not informed. This is kind of like that woman who was outside in New York City who was outside the the building and she was attacked by a man uh, in a hate crime mm-hmm. and uh, the doorman who could see through the glass didn't call the police. They didn't intervene. Instead, they closed the door so that they could shut out observing her attack. And the, ultimately these two doormen got fired. And so this is kind of like, I compare people who didn't vote to the doormen because you might not have actively been going out and casting your vote for an abuser and an oppressor <laughs> and a traitor, but you're not doing anything about stopping it. I see your point, but I would say some people are so misinformed that they just like, they just care about their lives and they, they're not looking, listening to the news. There's lots of people that I know that don't listen to the news and don't, they, they just go to their job they go into their whole little relationship thing and then that's it. Like the world doesn't expand beyond like small sections in their lives. They don't travel. Like there's, there's, there's a lot of people I think that are completely ignorant. So it, I wouldn't say that they're all the doormen. They're all potentially people who never even saw what happened or may have seen the doormen see the people, but didn't care enough to ask. You know, it, 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 I think that there's a lot of people that are like that. 
So I think the question is, you know, why are people like that? Why aren't they doing anything? Why aren't they contributing to helping to build a safer, more just and equitable society, actively contributing? And so connecting the Karen Gosby episode with Sonia Renee Taylor, I would say, you know, you had asked, what do you think people have in common, survivors of domestic abuse versus cults? I think there is a common element of not having, you know, good boundaries, which is a function of self-love, right? right? Of not wanting to protect yourself first and care for yourself first above other people. Because other people, if someone else is making a demand on you that is going to be harmful to you, that's going to inhibit your ability to have agency over your life, and you you don't recognize that, Mm -hmm. then that's a function of your consciousness around what is good for you. That means that you haven't actually defined what the set of qualities and characteristics are that would make you a healthy, happy, joyful, fulfilled individual. Because if you did, then you would recognize that this person who is harming you, it's not okay. And for some, I think the difference is that everybody is susceptible to abuse or cult indoctrination. It's just that some people's boundaries are clearer. And so they, they, they recognize it sooner or, and they take action versus others who may not recognize it because they're questioning their own judgment. Right. Right. Which makes sense. Yeah. That, that's something that, again, not everybody is. I wouldn't say educated enough or everybody had not everybody has the opportunity to to be able to recognize that in themselves and be able to uh, practice self-love rural radical self-love so they they can escape from it but i think a lot of times sometimes even if you do love yourself you can be still in a situation where you can't get out right so ultimately i know with with karen gosby uh i think the only one of the ways that she was able to escape was because the fate of of her abuser you know that he right. i mean life. i i'm not implying by the way i'm not implying that people who are, are victimized don't love themselves there could be a lot of reasons that you know aggregate reasons that contribute and including someone being in some ways you know in in, in a relationship that effectively is a form of imprisonment but um yes you're right with her she her husband uh committed suicide mm-hmm. and we don't know what would have happened if he didn't. But it, I think what, something that was very powerful that she said was that all of the advocacy that she does right now in Calgary, which is a lot around mental illness and addiction mm-hmm. and raising awareness for domestic violence, right? none of it could she have been able to participate in had he been alive. And so it's sad, you know, in her words, she said that it takes someone to someone's death for someone else to live. That is sad. That's that. And that's sad. And I hope that um, society work together to uh, all of us work together to hopefully change that. That we don't have to go to those extremes. Yeah. So, you know, back to society. What are some of the the variables that shape our perception of ourselves, and especially girls and women's perception that help us define our self worth? And these are questions that have to do with the first two episodes that we're discussing. 
which mm-hmm. delves very neatly into the third episode, which is Hillary Levy Friedman's book on beauty pageants. Yeah. Um, and this tension that ran throughout when I read it and when I had my conversation with her of the dichotomy between beauty pageants being either a mirror <laughs> into mm-hmm. society um, or a window into possibly empowerment, women's empowerment. And because a lot of women may not have been able to get a platform without having participated in beauty pageants. So what what were your thoughts about that episode, Michael? So when I first started listening, one of the first things that came into my mind is an episode of John Oliver's Last Week Tonight, where he talked about uh, beauty pageants. And so uh, he talked about how it's advertised as uh, the largest scholarship organization for women in the world, right? which is, is something that on the surface sounds good. And it sounds, yes, it's, it's women empowering. It's empowerment for women, right? So he actually looked into that claim a little deeper. So one of the claims were like, it was millions and millions of dollars that are available to women. But available to women doesn't necessarily mean that they're getting that money, right? Available, the way they made that, they calculated that number is, for example, they said, oh, there's a scholarship to this school, this school, and that school. And each scholarship is worth like, let's say $5,000 or, or $10,000, right? But there's three schools and they calculate the total available to be $30,000, right? Even though a person can only go to one school, right? And they also count it in terms of like, it's available to, let's say there's 20 contestants. So that $10,000 is available to these 20 contestants, so it's, oh, $200,000 that it's available to uh, as scholarships. So the actual money that's paid by these scholarships is a lot less than million. Wow, that's that's really deceptive data, you know, advertising. Oh, absolutely. So did it come through from my conversation that I was skeptical of beauty pageants as a form of empowerment? You know, it was, uh, it was very obvious. There was a point where... Uh, there was like a silence um, when you challenged her, I guess, in one part. But but like, you know, it, it was an overall really great conversation. But yes, you, you did come off as skeptical uh, when it came to this conversation, definitely. I, I mean, I think the part of that was, um, I mean, there are multiple parts. But one part was when Hillary referenced her research paper comparing parents of Kumon students and parents of beauty pageant participants. And I hadn't read the article. Um, there was a, There's a blog post that I linked to the episode, but just on the surface um, and calling both of those work, referencing participating in Kumon after-school programs that actually help you academically. And I found that really to be an inaccurate comparison because in one setting, girls in some ways one can argue exploit it if you look at sort of the whole TLC phenomenon of toddlers and tiaras if girls are being asked to participate in a way that helps them empower themselves through the superficial external and fleeting parts of their identity versus the internal parts which is what kumon is trying to do build skills so that you can be you can have academic skills and success don't depend on you being objectified. Right. You know, I don't think that that's a that's an equal comparison. No, I, I agree. And even you know, another thing mentioned in the episode was that 
Miss America, like for example, Miss America specifically, and I'm not talking about children in, in, in those beauty pageants. In order for you to qualify, you have to have never been married and you can never have had children before, right? Like those are the qualifications. So like, it's not just any woman that, that this is available to, right? So that's another way because it's, it's strictly, it's very strict when it comes to what, like who actually does qualify. I think when it comes to Kuman, yes, it, it's more of the internal thing. And while it's true that maybe some children, for example, in, in the chess example that was given, that some children, they get upset because of their performance. Again, that's, that, that is true, but it's not something that is uh, supported by the parents. And it, again, that's something that I'm sure happens in most sports where the participant would probably be upset if they didn't perform as well as they thought. I'm not an expert on chess as an extracurricular activity and the psychological impact of participating in competitive chess for children, but I have seen it through my own parenting that at these chess tournaments, as I shared with Hillary, the parents are all very cool and calm. When the kids come back after a a match and they start crying, it's not because of the parents, because the parents are there consoling them and saying to them, it's okay, you can play another one. And I think part of it is because in chess, there is a ranking, you do get a score. And so people kids can very easily see their score go up and down. And so that's related to society sort of ranking people and creating a competitive environment where individuals rather than teams are responsible for their own advancement. And so unlike a team situation where everybody has to collaborate, it's on you. And so you take the full burden of loss on yourself, even though it may not be something that is, I don't know, even though it may not be something that the parent, you know, is, is encouraging. Right. So it's interesting because when I was younger, I used to actually do competitive chess playing and I I am ranked, right? Not very high, mind you. (laughs) I think uh, when you're talking about how that's really within the individual, I remember playing in this one chess tournament. uh, It was a ranked chess tournament where I was playing against a young girl that was much younger than me. I was, I was a teenager. So I was like, maybe what, 14, 15. And this girl was like 10, 12, like, like really young. Right. And she won by like so much, you know? So, so like, again, that takes the external factor of who you are when it comes to chess, but yeah. And so, and, and to speak on that, since I have been doing, I did that when I was younger, I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I do compare myself to everyone else because I have a rating and uh, my rating may not be as high as other people. And it sort of it gives me a reality check. And it's like, OK, this is who I am and I have to accept where I am in, in this area. And these are the things that I need to do in order to get better. And the community is overall very supportive of like, hey, you want to learn? I can I can teach you some things. And overall, I, I thought during that time it was it was a very supportive kind of place but it's, it, it takes a lot of dedication to become better you need to study a lot exactly and I think that's the big difference is that chess is something that is very objective there's objective criteria for how you can improve you have to study you mm-hmm. have to you know look at opening moves closing moves study old games and how much you advance is a function of how much effort you put into it whereas beauty pageants are completely subjective it's the exact opposite where there's a standard of white beauty of, right. you know, blonde and blue eyed being preferable to any other, you know, shade or color 
and it's artificial. So that's the part that makes it very different. And the fact that examples of uh, different kinds of pageants was used to justify diversity, I, I just thought that that didn't really make sense. So, for example, what you do know, you mean? women who you know have disabilities or different, you know, there are different pageants for different races or different people from different national origins or uh, different age groups. That there's pageants to address all different kinds of bodies. That's not proof that there's diversity, because if you really had diversity, you would have people with different bodies competing with those with, you know, able bodies. Right, <laughs> and, 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 the, and when I mentioned like, you know, how Korea, for example, is a country with one of the highest rates of plastic surgery, where women in Korean pageants, they all look alike. They have the same hair, same bone structure, same body shape. And to say that, well, some winners, you know, look different, you know, black women wore their natural hair in these pageants. Well, that doesn't discount the fact that the majority of women still aspire to look a certain way, even if there's an outlier with the winner. Right. And this is another reflection into society, right? Like this is what society feels is beauty, or this is the, the standard of beauty that we're looking at, right? And you're right. It doesn't seem like there's all that much diversity in what that standard is. So I, I agree. It, it, it has to do with culture and how we are as a society. Because again, you just said that this happens in Korea too. So this is not, this is something that happens worldwide. It's not just a problem here in the United States with like Miss America only, right? Yeah. And so I, I don't know, I, I am definitely, you know, obviously very forthcoming about my, about the characterization that this is something that's empowering. And for the beauty pageant mothers to say, well, I'm enrolling my kids in this program because because I want them to build skills around how to have relationships and develop friendships and public speaking and all of that. Well, the, this is not the only kind of activity where kids can develop those skills. You can get, enroll your kid in speech and debate <laughs> and they can develop public speaking skills or improv or drama and and they're they can have um, those kinds of kids, in fact, in society are the ones who are made fun of, you know, the drama kids. So it just seems like a big stretch for the beauty contestant parents and moms to be using that, ex that explanation or excuse, which, you know, in some ways really mirrors their own self-identity and self-worth, that they think that the only way girls can achieve power and influence in society is to use their body uh, right. and, and look, but, you know, to gain it. Yeah. To be fair, though, but like, I'm not 100% educated in, in beauty pageants and whatnot, but I, I'm pretty sure that their looks aren't the only thing in which they're rated in. I know that they're asked certain questions and they have to be able to be mentally prepared to answer really, really difficult questions that I think like the average person is may, may not necessarily be prepared for, but it, it's not, again, it, the major reason that they're in it is because of the way they look. Yeah. I mean, I think Hillary referenced the whole part about, you know, having a platform these days, how it's evolved and every contestant has to have a platform and advocate for a particular cause. And in some ways it's de-emphasizing the physical, but 
having a platform and speaking about it in a deep way, I think is not something that would be weighted more than everything else. And certainly if your platform was something that was too controversial, I doubt that that would be something that would score you high points with the judges, which by the way, I don't know if we discussed this, but many of the judges or the majority of the judges from the book I recall are actually women. Oh, okay. That's, that's, uh, I wouldn't know, but okay. So they're they're women. So it's this type of uh, culture, I guess, that they they support and they build for that. It's like women policing women's conformity to traditional standards of femininity. Exactly. That's what's going on. I'm surprised to hear that because we hear people like Donald Trump going into the women's dressing rooms to, I guess, judge them or whatever. And I would think it would be men. So just to close our conversation with um, Hillary, have you ever seen any TV show where physical attraction or physicality rather, where physicality is primary to the show? So for example, reality shows like like um, Toddlers and Tierras, all the Real Housewives shows, The Bachelor, all these shows where your body and your appearance is paramount to you advancing? That's a strange question because I think in general television, beauty and outward looks is very important to almost any, and not not just reality, right? But just every TV show that you're watching, in the background, people are vetted on the way they look. I think uh, I, I think it's it, like the harder question is like, well, which TV shows aren't like that? Like which TV shows don't really pay as much attention to the outer beauty of a person? And I'm sure that there are, but I, I believe because the way society works, the thing that makes the more money is probably going to be where the people presented to you are going to be attractive and and they're going to look a certain way right i think that um when it comes to reality tv shows what what it is that we see in those shows are the most sensational parts of what we're seeing we may not like we may not see the darker parts that basically don't sell well right so that's that's what i would say to that question all right well i um appreciate you spending the time to talk about the Mirrors and Windows series. So thank you, Michael. And until next time, keep well and stay informed. Yes, will do. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at Q&A dot k-a-n-d-u-i-t dot com I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail dot com with your questions